good to be with you. It's good to be back in Perth. Um, me and my family, um, my family and I, uh, we have been uh, back in Malaysia for the last two weeks so, uh, to celebrate Chinese New Year and also really to see family. So we haven't been back for a number of years because of COVID, uh, but it was good uh, just to spend time with family and to see them again and to see our relatives again. Uh, but it is always good to come back here to be with the family of God and uh, you know, to sing praises together and to hear from Him. Now let me start with this and with this question. Uh, what is the biggest and most impactful news you have ever received in your life? And what news has made the most difference in your life? So two ways, usually, we can think of when we have a question like this. The first way is to think about you know, what's happened in the world that made, made a difference in my life or in your life. And we can think of very quickly a few contenders in that category, isn't it? One major news that really changed the course of the world is what happened on 9-11, September 11, 2001. You know, planes crashed into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City, and another plane crashed into the Pentagon. So these terrorist attacks, they changed not only the aviation industry, it changed the world. That was big news. Now another major news that is more recent, that is fresher in our memories, of course, is the COVID pandemic. Who can forget the times where you know, we have lockdowns announced and, you know, all of us, we were concerned with our daily COVID numbers. And I don't have to state the impact of COVID in our lives because, well, all of us live through it. We experience that. And the impact is not just about lives lost, as tragic as they are. It fundamentally changed society. I don't think we have seen the end of it. It changed the workplace. It changed how we interact and view one another. It changed how we talk about one another. That was big news. Now another way that we can think about and answer the question about the most impactful news is to think about it in a more personal side of things, isn't it? You know, I gave you two negative examples. Let me give you a positive example. Perhaps for you, the news that made the most impact to you is, you know, when your wife comes to you and say she's pregnant and you'll be first-time parents. That's big news. Now, it may not be the most impactful for the rest of the world, but it's big news to you because it changes your life. And the most impactful news I've ever received, although I did not know it at that time, is when I received a letter in the mail from Curtin University in 2002. That was 21 years ago. It's hard to imagine that. That letter you know, went something like, you have been accepted into Curtin University as a student. That news changed my life. So there are news, news in the world, or personal news, that is impactful or momentous in our lives. And there's one news, one glorious, momentous, big, amazing, significant news that changed not only the personal lives of people, but has an impact on a cosmic and eternal scale. It is the greatest news of all time in all of creation that has the greatest impact that lasts for all of eternity. 
And that, of course, is that news, of course, is the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as you can see, hopefully you, you know, saw our Facebook um, post, we are starting a new sermon series on the book of Romans called The Gospel of God. And we are looking at and focusing on Romans chapters 1 to 4, probably chapter five, the beginning of chapter 5. And throughout history, the book of Romans has always had a major impact on many people. I'll list just one, one that many of us might be familiar with. Martin Luther, he was a monk who took the righteousness of God very seriously. He took his sin very seriously. And because of that, he struggled tremendously with his sin, with his sinfulness. He wanted to find grace from God. He looked desperately for peace, for salvation, and he couldn't find it. But as he was preparing for his lectures, he came to the book of Romans, he studied the book of Romans, and he came to an understanding of the gospel. And he said this, when I understood the text, the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. Through the book of Romans, he came to understand, he came to know that we are justified by faith alone. And because of that, that changed the entire course of his own life and the entire course of the Catholic Church at that time. And so when we come through this series, through the book of Romans, it is our prayer, really our prayer, that we will encounter this gospel once again, afresh in our own souls, in, our, in the life of the church. We never want to take the gospel news for granted. Never. And the Apostle Paul, he never does that. And so over the next two months leading up to Palm Sunday, uh, David and I, we will be preaching from the early chapters of Romans. And as we do that, you know, it is our prayer that God's Spirit will work in all of us, opening our eyes once again to the great gospel of God found in Romans. And as we do that, let me encourage you, right, to, over the next eight weeks, go back and read and reread Romans chapters 1 to 5. Right, make that familiar to you and take root in your heart. Go and reread Romans chapters 1 to 5, week after week. And with that in mind, before I read our passage for today, uh, I will uh, lead us in a time of prayer. I will give you time to pray for yourself as well as we come to the preaching of the Word of God. So let us pray right now. Father, as we come to your Word this evening, this great gospel, this great news of Jesus Christ. We pray that by your Spirit, you work in our hearts once again. That even though for many of us, we probably have heard this for many, many years, but we do pray that by your Spirit, you help us to marvel, to wonder, to look to it afresh and help it once again to take root in our hearts, knowing that you have loved us in Christ. And so, Father, we do ask and pray for your Spirit to work in our hearts to receive your word this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before I start reading Romans very quickly, let me give you a quick background to the book of Romans. And we will, you'll hear more of that in the coming weeks as we go through every single sermon. So, Romans is a letter written by Paul to the church in Rome, hence the name Romans. And Paul has never been to this church. He has never known and visited this church, unlike so many of his letters. And so one of the reasons why he wrote this letter is to introduce himself to the Romans and to tell them what he's all about. Again, that's more, but that's one of the reasons. 
Uh, there are other issues brewing in the church that he's writing this letter to, to deal with. But again, we'll hear more about that in the later weeks. But one of the reasons that he wants this church, the church in Rome, to know what he is all about, to what his heart is all about, what he's passionate about. And his heart is always about God and always about the gospel. And it is not surprising then as we come to Romans chapter 1, he starts immediately with the gospel. So in our sermon today, I will be focusing just on the first four verses of Romans, chapters 1, 1 to 4. And I know some of you say, what, just four chapters, uh, four verses? We'll take it right now, we won't. Next week, we'll have larger chunks. But just today, as a way to start the series, what better way to start the series than to focus on the gospel of God, just as Paul himself does. So I'm going to read from Romans 1, uh, 1 to 17, just to give us a context of the whole passage. But I'll focus on the first four verses. And as always, if you have your own Bibles, um, read, follow along in your own Bibles and make notes in your own Bibles if you can. Uh, but if you have your own Bibles, follow along. Let me invite you to stand as I read from God's Word. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported over all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit is in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan to, uh, many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You may be seated. The first four verses of this book, packed as always with great truths of God. And he starts and the whole book by introducing himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, in many of our translations, the word servant is used, but servant doesn't really get the full force of what Paul meant. Right? In our day, servant uh, 
could mean just some, you know, somebody who serves another person. could be voluntarily, could be somebody who's paid to serve somebody else. But here, when Paul talks about himself, he calls himself a slave for Christ Jesus. That's the word that he uses. Now, don't think American chattel slavery. That's not what he meant. But what Paul had in mind is the idea of belonging. Right? Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, Paul who belongs to and serves Christ Jesus. So he not only serves Jesus, he belongs to Jesus. And he's been called by Christ to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. He's been called to be an apostle who is sent out with a message. And that message is the gospel of God. Right? Set apart for the gospel of God. And the word gospel means great news or momentous news. News that has great impact, news that changes lives. And that's certainly the case with this gospel of God that Paul is proclaiming. So he goes on to give three features of this gospel message. So we will have a look at these three features. So the first point is this. The gospel is promised in the Old Testament. The gospel is promised in the Old Testament. So verse 2, the gospel he, God, proclaimed or promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel is promised in the Old Testament. And it's not something that just you know, suddenly popped up when Jesus came. It is news that God has promised all the way back throughout the Old Testament through his prophets. Right? Since the beginning, he has been laying the foundations to prepare for the coming of Christ. He's given us patterns and promises and people in the Old Testament, all pointing to Jesus. And we have the same God in the Old Testament as we do in the New. Now, I mention this because, well, sometimes people have this uh, mistaken idea or misconception that the Old Testament is not important. And therefore, you know, we don't have to read it or study it as much. Worse still, some people have the idea that, you know, the Old Testament is contradictory to the New Testament. There was a prominent pastor, very part of a very large church in America. He wrote a book on this topic. And in that book, he said that one of the major issues of modern Christianity is that we rely too much on the Old Testament. And he says, you know, the modern church, uh, it, the problem with the modern church is our incessant habit of reaching back to the Old Covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. And then he goes on to say that when it comes to stumbling blocks to the faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. And so for him, in the Old Testament, God is holy, yes. But in the New Testament, God is love. In the Old Testament, God is angry. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, God is brokenhearted. So he sees this great discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament to the point where his view of God in the Old and the New Testament is completely different. Now, God, in the Old Testament, did not suddenly love, learn to know what love is and decided, you know, love is a better way in the New Testament. No, 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 no. We have the same unchanging God in the Old as we do in the New Testament. God does not change. He did not change. And one of the things that he mentioned is that we rely too much on the Old Testament. In fact, you know what? I would argue the opposite. 
I would say that we have completely neglected the Old Testament that we don't know how to read it. We don't know and we don't realize that the gospel has been promised all the way back in the Old. And part of the issue is that sometimes when we read our scriptures, when we read our Bibles, we read in small little piecemeal chunks. We read one paragraph and one sentence, and we are happy with that. But the Old Testament is designed, is meant, intended to be read in large chunks. And when we read small little piecemeal chunks of the Old Testament, we have small little piecemeal understanding of the Old Testament. Instead of how the New Testament authors would read the Old. But here Paul says, this gospel of God has been promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Old Testament. It is not something new, but something that he has promised a long time ago. Well, quick example. Quick example. Most of us, we are familiar with Genesis chapter 3. We're familiar that that's the chapter talking about sin. That's the chapter where God cursed Adam and Eve because of what they did. We know sin entered into the world. The world is never the same after that. We know God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden and they were never allowed back in. We read that. We know those things. But yet in that account, there are two instances of God's gospel being announced, being demonstrated. Genesis 3.15, God promised that the offspring of Eve will one day crush the head of the serpent. That's a gospel promise. Genesis 3.21, God made garments of skin from an animal sacrifice for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them, covering their shame and their nakedness. That's a picture of the gospel promise. And that's all the way back in Genesis. And as we read throughout the Old Testament, time and time and time and time again, we see God promising that He will send His Messiah to come and save His people. Time and time and time again, we see God rescuing His people through His appointed Savior. We have the same God in the Old and the New Testament. And this gospel has been promised beforehand through His prophets in the Old Testament. We have a God that is unchanging, immutable. And because He is unchanging, what He has promised will never change. We have one gospel, one and only one gospel throughout the Old and the New Testament. This gospel has not changed from the Old to the New Testament. It hasn't changed from the New Testament to, to, to today. It will never change for all eternity. And that means we can have complete confidence in who God is and what He has promised. But we don't have a God where we have to wonder if He loves us or He does not. Like, you know, picking daisies. He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. That's not the kind of God we have. We have an unchanging, immutable God and He has promised this gospel beforehand in the Old Testament. Remain the same throughout the centuries. So our circumstances, our situations, it may change all the time throughout our lives. Our jobs may change. Our families may change. Where we live can change. We change as we grow. And humanly speaking, we don't know what tomorrow brings. And there's so much uncertainty in our world. As parents, we can be anxious about our children, how they will turn out in the future. We worry about our job security in our workplaces. 
We have concerns about where society is going. So many things can cause anxiety in our lives. But the one unchanging, immutable truth is that God does not change and the gospel He promised does not change. And therefore, we stand on that promise with our lives anchored upon that promise. It's the same gospel that, prom- that was promised in the old, same gospel today. Same gospel that gave, so, gave hope to so many in the New Testament in the first century. And the same gospel throughout the century, same gospel today. And this gospel gives us hope because this gospel is about Jesus Christ. And this is where we come to our second point. The gospel, first point, the gospel is promised in the Old Testament. Second point, the gospel is about God the Son becoming a man. The gospel is about God the Son becoming a man. This is from verse 3. Let me read again from verses 3 and 4. The gospel he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets and holy scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. It is about God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, coming down on earth as a human being in the lineage of King David. Now this mention of you know, Jesus being the descendant of King David, it's not something that we, again, we don't think much about that today. But to Paul, that is a very important part of the gospel. In another letter that he wrote to Timothy, right in 2 Timothy 2.8, he says this, Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, Descended from David, this is my gospel. Why is being part of the line of David so important about the gospel for Paul? We'll find out about that in the next point. But there's one aspect that I would like to draw uh, our attention to and draw encouragement from as well. The other aspect first here is that this gospel of God is based upon an actual historical person 2,000 years ago regarding his son, who as to his earthly life. It is not a made-up story by mankind in the first century to control people. So this gospel, this great news is about God the Son coming down on earth in the person of Christ. He was a real human being in the flesh, born of a virgin, had earthly parents as he grew up, spent time eating with his disciples, teaching his followers, ultimately dying on a cross, rising again on the third day. He was a real historical person. And we can know that from historical documents that Christians over the centuries, we have called the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these accounts were about his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And if you are here, you know, if you are somebody, you are looking into the Christian faith, you're trying to figure out what this is all about. Well, let me encourage you to read through those documents to read through Mark or Matthew or Luke or John and read about Jesus for yourself instead of relying on what the internet says. Go back to the source. And if you need a Bible, come and speak to me. I'm happy to give you one. But the idea is Jesus was a real historical person. And this is something that as Christians, we also need to revisit and really to recapture the wonder of what it means for God the Son to become a human being. Because our hearts, we so easily 
trivialize something that we are familiar with. By God's grace, we can celebrate Christmas year after year. So we talk about the coming of Christ. By God's grace, we can meet together as God's people every week and talk about God coming to us in Jesus. But as we do that week after week, what happens is that, again, if we are not careful, we trivialize this magnificent truth. And so what we need to do is to revisit this afresh and reflect upon that monumental truth. Monumental truth that God of the universe, creator of all things, He came to us in this creation that He has made. One analogy that I've used to talk about this this relation is very similar to how an author of a novel relates to the world that his, he or she has wrote, written about. It's like what J.R.R. Tolkien relates to the world of the Lord of the Rings, or C.S. Lewis relating to the world of Narnia. There was, a English, uh, there was an English crime writer and poet named Dorothy Sayers in the early 20th century. She is best known for a series of mystery novels that was about an English uh, detective named Lord Peter Whimsey. And as you read through the stories, you find that this detective actually was a pretty unhappy and broken bachelor. But about halfway through this series uh, about this detective, a woman shows up in his life in the novels. And this woman in the novels is named Harriet Vane. She, this woman, this Harriet Vane, she was a female mystery novel writer. And in that story, she was one of the very first women to get through Oxford University. And in that story, Harriet and Peter, they fall in love. And her love starts to heal his broken soul, and he changed as a result. Now, what's interesting about this fictional character from Dorothy Sayers is that, well, Dorothy Sayers herself was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Like Harriet Vane, she wrote mystery novels. And as you read on, you see the similarities becoming more and more prominent. It seems as if she wrote herself into her own story, into the world that she created to heal the broken soul of Peter Whimsey. The author enters into the world that she created. And in the gospel, the author of life, the creator of all things, he entered into our world, the world that he made, so that he can come and save us to heal our broken souls. And so this gospel is this great, glorious news about God the Son, entering into our world as a man. And He has come to save us. He has come to save us. And that's where we come to our third point. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord. Verse 4, let me read that. And who, through the Spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God, so the Son, through whom, uh, through the Spirit of Holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
So this Jesus, he came on earth as a man, descended from David, and he was appointed to be the Son of God in power. Wait, wait, wait. He was appointed the Son of God? Isn't he already the Son of God? Why is there a need to appoint him as the Son of God? Well, the phrase Son of God in the New Testament, very oftentimes it refers to the idea of the King of Israel. And this is, this is where we go back to our first point, that all of this is promised in the Old Testament. And all the way back in the Old Testament, in a great chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised King David that he will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And David's offspring will reign on this throne. Let me just read one verse from that chapter. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. And this is what God says about David's descendants. Notice the wording. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So this Davidic king is the son of God. The Davidic king is known as the son of God. And in our Bible reading, we saw Psalm chapter 2. And Psalm chapter 2 is describing the crowning, the coronation of a king on David's throne. Right, at the beginning of Psalm chapter 2, we see uh, that it's talking about the nations and the kings of the earth. They will rise up against God's people, against God and His Messiah, His anointed. But God sees that and pff, laughs at them and mocks them scoffs at them. And in verse 6, notice what God says. This is Yahweh saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Alright, this is God saying. Then verse 7, this is the king speaking. This is the king talking about God. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. This is what God says to the king. He, God, said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. So when this king is crowned, this king becomes the son of God. Right? In other words, the coronation of this Davidic king is his appointment to be the son of God. Right? As the, this Davidic king becomes king as he's crowned, he becomes the son of God. And then verse 8, this is amazing. If you, again, think, look at this. Ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. It's not just a king of a small nation anymore. This sounds like a king over all creation. And because of this, many have come to see Psalm chapter 2 as a psalm talking about the coming Messiah. And with that background in the Old Testament, we come and read Romans chapter 1. Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power. What Paul is saying is that through the Holy Spirit, this Jesus was appointed to be the Davidic king, to be the promised Messiah. And in that way, he becomes the Son of God. He becomes the Davidic king. And the way the appointment happens is in verse 4, by his resurrection from the dead. And so God the Son becomes a man to die on the cross for our sins, appointed to be king by his resurrection from the dead. And so the resurrection of Christ then is his coronation, crowning as Lord, as king. Not just a king over a small nation. Not just a king over a Subi church. But the king over all of creation. 
And that is the gospel message in a nutshell. Jesus is Lord. That's the great news, that great big momentous news, a news that changes everything in our world, the news with eternal consequence. That is the gospel. That is the one gospel, the one gospel that changes everything. And Jesus now, he's King and Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, reigning over all the world. And one day he will come back and put all his enemies under his feet, under his judgment. And so now the question for all of us, of course, is what are you going to do about this king? About this one gospel? There's no other gospel of God. How are we going to respond to King Jesus? Two ways to respond. One way is to reject him, isn't it? To reject him as your ruler, reject him and continue to live in your own way. And the result of that is the coming judgment of God, eternal separation. I mean, you rejected the king of the universe. What else can you expect from your rebellion? But another way to respond to him is to submit and to accept him as our Lord, as our king. Look at verse 4, the last phrase of verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is a king who has saved his people. He's a king who has given his life for them. He is a king who has given his people his righteousness, again, which we will see in chapter 3. With a king like that, we are called to trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our king. We recognize that his death, his resurrection brings new life to us and we live in his way. We stop living with ourselves as the Lord of our lives. We trust that he is our king and we follow him. And as we go through the series, we will explore what it means to follow him, what it means for this Jesus to be king. But the question for us tonight, as Paul opens up this letter about Jesus, the gospel, Jesus is the Lord. The question for us is how are we going to respond? There are many things in our world vying for attention, vying for our loyalty, vying for our allegiance. None of them can provide salvation like Christ. I mentioned at the start of the sermon, the most impactful news that I have ever received was the acceptance letter from Curtin University. Well, what is most impactful about a letter is not Curtin University itself. I came to Perth as a young 19-year-old, you know, living away from home for the very first time, not knowing how to do many basic things at home. You know, I had to learn how to adjust to new culture, learn how to cook, Ooh. learn how to adjust university life, learn how to make new friends. But in God's providence, God's sovereignty, I became friends with a group of people from a Christian club in uni. And now I don't even remember much about how I made friends with them, but I did. But it is through them that I first truly heard about the gospel, this gospel of God, this Jesus Christ as my Lord. At first I rejected it because I knew, I knew deep down that if I accepted Christ, I knew it would change my life. I resisted that. I did not want my life to change. I did not want Christ as my Lord. 
but God had other plans. He surrounded me with people who loved me, who encouraged me, who prayed for me. And His Spirit worked in me. And eventually, my resistance was melted by the kindness, the love, and the grace shown to me by God's people. Don't underestimate your kindness to the people as you tell them about the gospel. But through these people, God's Spirit worked in my heart, and I eventually did receive Christ as King, as my King, as my Lord. It took a while, of course, but my life has never been the same ever since. Because God is a good God, and Christ is a good King. Jesus is Lord. There is one gospel, one glorious, momentous, amazing news. One that is promised beforehand in the Old Testament. But this news is about Jesus Christ as the Lord of all. How are you going to respond to that? Let me pray. Father God, we come before you and we praise you for your grace and mercy in Christ. Lord, as we come and start this sermon series on the book of Romans, it is such an amazing start where we see the gospel of God, your good news, great news about your son coming to earth as a human being, dying on a cross for our sins, and now he is crowned as Lord of all. And so, Father, as your people, as those who have already accepted the Lord, Jesus as our Lord and Savior, help us to renew our allegiance to him. So many distractions are there in our world, so many things calling for our loyalty, our allegiance. And Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you draw our hearts back to him, back to our King, who loved us and gave himself for us. And Father, we pray for those who are here, who are still looking, who are still wondering who this Jesus is. We pray that they will come and see that Jesus is Lord, King over all the earth, that your spirit will work in our hearts and draw them close to Jesus, just as, just as you did for all of us here. And so, Father, we ask and pray that you do this for us, for our church, so that as your people, we may continue to live in this world with you as our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.